Thanks, Brandon. Well, good morning to you. You all right? All right. Both of you are good. That's good. My name's Steve, one of the pastors here. Good morning. If you are new, you picked a great Sunday to join us. We're going to talk about the wrath of God. Isn't that exciting? That's what you come to church for, isn't it? Uh, we're going to look at a portion of Scripture today from Revelation chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. There should be one in the pew in front of you or around you somewhere. Ask your neighbor. We're a friendly bunch. We'd love to hand you a Bible. If you don't have one, uh, take that one, and that's our gift to you. Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to be. So turn all. This is the easiest book in your Bible to find. Turn all the way to the end of the book. And you will find Revelation, find Revelation chapter 8. I'll tell you where we've been. We've just completed our uh, first step of the Lamb of God opening up the seals uh, that were in the scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. And we saw the sequential opening of the seals. We saw the four horsemen go forward. We saw the, uh, the biographical section in seals 5. And seal 6 where we saw uh, martyrs in heaven. We saw the sealing of God's uh, ethnic people Israel, and then we went back to heaven to take a look at those who were coming out of the tribulation, those who are washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb and believing that Jesus is who he says he is on a day where the wrath of God is being poured out on earth. So we're going to deal today with something that you have definitely felt, although you probably don't know the technical term for it. It's something that as you look out into our culture and you see our society and you know of stories of maybe religious persecution or religious martyrdom that happen around the world, you are asking the question that theologians call theodicy. Here's what theodicy is. It means, technically speaking, the vindication of God. How does God in his purposes and sovereignty and providence deal with a world that is beset with evil? Well, the ultimate answer to that question, that question is asked really throughout the scriptures. As early as you find in the book of Genesis, you have Noah dealing with the question of theodicy. What do you do with a human race whose only inclination of their heart is only wicked continually? What do you do with Sodom and Gomorrah where God comes down to see if the outcry that has come up to heaven is as bad as it seems. And Abraham stands before God and says, God, far be it from you to sweep away the innocent with the wicked. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What do you do with the plagues in Egypt? What do you do with the judgment upon God's people that Habakkuk writes about, where he says to God, God, you have made me see wickedness and evil all day long. What are you doing? It seems the consistent cry throughout the scriptures of God's people so often is, God, what are you doing? You ever feel like that? God, what is happening? What are you doing? I don't understand how you can be God and good and righteous and loving and still see evil on this planet. Well, the ultimate answer to that question is in the book of Revelation. Because if you close your New Testament and leave it off with Jude, things are not good. If you've ever read the book of Jude, you know Jude is the church under threat, that there are false teachers uh, who have walked away from the faith, who are in the church, and they're causing problems in the church. Paul in 2 Timothy, one of the last letters that he writes, says that evil people will go from bad to worse. Be encouraged, Timothy. 
So when we come to the book of Revelation, you're waiting to see how God is going to deal with evil. And in the seal judgments, you saw God release his hand of restraint upon a society, politically, nationally, socially, economically. And the fourth horseman goes forward and Hades follows him. And what you're going to see here in Revelation chapter 8 is God begin to answer the cries for justice. And you need this section in your Bible. This is a sobering, intense, severe section of the scriptures. I preached it in the first service and I went, gosh, that is an intense passage when I got done. And it's meant to be that way because what you're meant to see in Revelation chapter 8 are the stakes. You're meant to see what it means to reject an infinite personal God, the maker of heaven and earth, to hate God, to hate his people, and to hate his Christ. What is in store for those people? And that's Revelation chapter 8. So I want to draw our attention to something in, in Revelation chapter 8. I'm just going to treat the chapter somewhat briefly, and then we're going to spend some time over in Luke chapter 18. So you can find that early if you want, and you'll get an extra five points if you do that. But you'll be ready to go when we find our way there. But let's pray and ask God for his grace to understand what his word has to say, that we would be a people characterized in all the scriptures to know and understand who God is. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for who you are, for your grace to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We give thanks for your word. We pray that we would reorder our hearts and minds, our affections, our beliefs. As we look into your word this morning, may we be a people who understand the truth and can stand in the midst of a culture that is confused about issues of justice and truth and speak from the confidence of your word. Father, bless us as we look into your word here this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 8. Y'all there? Let's take a look. The, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments are what uh, commentators call are telescopic. Remember the, how pirates used to look out on their boats and they have this little thing and it goes tick, 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 tick. And that's how the judgments are, is that they all are held within one another. They're like nesting dolls. I don't know of any other illustration I can use. I hope you're with me. But you move through the, seven, the six, first six seals and you get to the seventh seal and the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. You get to the first six trumpets, you get to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. So all of these judgments are going to get increasingly intense and increasingly quick. So let's see the opening of the seventh seal and we'll see the first four trumpets here during our time today. Revelation 8, verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now that's a weird thing. If you've been with us through the course of our study in Revelation, this seems a little bit odd. Because through the book of Revelation, things have been loud, right? That if nothing else, you've needed earplugs in heaven. As the four living creatures consistently praise God and stand around the throne saying, We're holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. 
Not only that, you have the 24 elders representing the church who stand there and cast their crowns down before the throne, saying worthy, that virtually all of creation in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 was consumed with worship and praise and exaltation of the one who sits on the throne. Chapter 5, the all of creation in earth and in heaven and under the earth is consumed with worship of the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. Last week we saw the tribulation saints coming out of the tribulation, standing before heaven, praising with a loud voice. You've seen angels announce with a loud voice. You've seen lightning and thunder. And in Revelation 8, verse 1, everything stops. It's as if all of heaven holds its breath in anticipation for what is about to come next. Look at verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. This seems to be a a specific class of angels. Uh, Throughout the book of Revelation, you have angels who are set aside for a particular purpose and particular time. And these angels, who are the ones who literally, uh, you see the the, uh, article there, these seven angels who stand before God, they seem to be a particular class of angels. Uh, It may be that Gabriel is one of this, either this group or one of this class of angels. If you remember in Luke chapter one, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah is a priest and he, it's his turn by lot to go into the holy place and to burn incense. And as he's burning incense, Gabriel shows up and he says, your prayers have been heard, you will have a son. And you can imagine that's a pretty intense moment for Zechariah, and Zechariah says, well, how am I to know this? For I am old, and my wife is advanced in years. How in the world is this even possible, God, or Gabriel? And Gabriel gives one of my favorite quotes in the entire Bible as he's standing there in the holy place. He simply says to Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Now, you don't need a better calling card than that, do you? That Zechariah, you don't understand who you're talking to. I am the angel that is tasked to be able to give knowledge of what God is going to do in the future in your life. And he does the same thing with Mary. So you have these seven angels who are prepared in the presence of God to be given now seven trumpets. Just like it was given to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these angels now are given seven trumpets. God uses angels in the book of Revelation to accomplish his judgment and his will. That the lamb, Jesus Christ, standing in heaven, opening the seals, now determining that these angels will serve his purposes and pouring out judgment upon the earth. Now, what I want you to see in this text is really in the next two verses. This is the theme of really this entire section. What you're waiting for in Revelation is for God to answer something that he has not answered yet. Take a look at verse three. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. A censer is something that you put incense in. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now, if you are hearing the golden altar, you should say, up at this point, since you've memorized all of my sermons up to this point, you should say, that sounds familiar. 
I'm glad that you've got that. Turn back in Revelation, just one page in your Bible. Turn back to Revelation chapter 6. Take a look at the fifth seal in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That the cries of these people who have been martyred, who have held to the testimony of God and the word of Jesus Christ, have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, now arrive in heaven and remember that their previous life was characterized by persecution, martyrdom, and death. And here comes an angel in complete silence walking up to the altar. You know, in the, during the Old Testament period when priests would go in to burn incense, it was a completely silent affair. And all of heaven now quiets in anticipation, in pregnant silence to wait and to see how God will answer the cries of the martyrs. Do you believe that God has an answer for the martyrs? Do you believe that God has a judgment upon those who would persecute, martyr, and kill his people? Here comes an angel with a censer and with incense. And he takes that and offers it with the prayers, verse 3, of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So that as smoke fills the heavenly court and incense rises with the prayers for justice and for vindication that God, we have trusted you and we've laid our lives down and we've lost our life for the truth of who you are and what you have said and who Jesus Christ is. Oh God, bring justice now. And now at this point, the incense and the fire and the prayers mingle and rise before God. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. This is God's amen to the cries of justice, cries for justice from his people. Fills it with fire from the altar, throws it on the earth, and there noise returns. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So that you're meant to see this is how God is going to answer the cries for justice from his people. He has not forgotten them. He is not deaf to them. God is about to answer in perhaps, up well, and up to this point, the most devastating earthly judgments that we have seen. And they come in response to the cries of his people for justice. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. During the uh, commentators note that these plagues are a, um, a more significant realization to some of the plagues that you see in Egypt. Egypt had a, a plague of hail along with fire from heaven, probably lightning. 
Here it's mixed with blood, and you can imagine now as these martyrs cry out to avenge our blood upon the earth, here comes the vengeance of God upon the planet. Hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Now, that, that seems like a lot, right? The total land mass on earth is a little over 57 million square miles. This is really important for you. You can use this today at lunch when you talk to your waitress. And a third of that is burned up by fire. A third of that is a little over 19 million square miles. In August of 2020 in California, there was a fire, a, a group of fires really, called the August Complex. It was the biggest grouping of fire or forest fires in recorded history since they started keeping track of fires in the, uh, in the mid-30s. It burned a million acres. One million acres, the biggest on record. Now, 19 million square miles, a, a square, one mile by one mile, is 640 acres. So if you do the math, you don't need to do it, I did it for you because we're a full-service organization. As a church, you don't, we don't expect you to come and do math in the world. It's a little over 1,600 square miles is the August complex. This is 19 million square miles. This is Russia, Canada, America, China, and Argentina. One more time. Russia, America, Canada, China, and Argentina, all on fire. Do you remember watching the video of those who were fleeing the fires in California? This is all of North America, Russia, China, and Argentina fleeing for their lives. Do you know how the August complex of fires started? It wasn't human negligence, it was lightning strikes. And here now in God's vengeance, and response to the prayers of his people who have lost their life, God now rains fire down upon the earth. That's trumpet number one. Look at verse eight. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Imagine the communities on our planet that rely on fishing that shrimping is done and fishing is done and crabbing is done and lobstering is done and a third of the salt water is affected now. A third of the ships for international trade are done. This is devastating commerce. This is devastating the gross domestic product of any particular nation that has seafaring ports. All are affected by trumpet number two. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven. The first one is probably some kind of meteor of some kind. The third one is a star that fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. We've moved from land to sea to fresh water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Wormwood is mentioned eight different times in the Old Testament. 
always connected with poison, judgment, pain, and death. Trumpet number four. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. The earth is plunged into frigid temperatures. The night, you've lost the light of the moon and the light of the stars and the light of the day. While your first four seals began to unravel humanity, national, international, social, economic, here now God begins to judge the earth in, in, um, with created forces. Hail, meteors, stars, and the sun. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about the creation account, right? And, and after every single day that God creates, it's declared what? It's declared good. Good for who? Well, it's good for man. That we live on this planet and we have access to the sun that gives light to our eyes. We have plants that allow photosynthesis to occur and exchange carbon dioxide to breathe in oxygen. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice to do? We don't have to breathe in ash and fire and smoke and those things. That we have access to clean water. We have access to agricultural production that allows us to eat and to be satisfied during our time on earth. And it's as if in Revelation chapter 8, you begin to see the unraveling of the created order itself. All because God's people cry for justice. That God begins to turn creation upon sinful man. You know, this week, there was a celebration of Earth Day. And a lot of the conversation around Earth Day is we need to protect the planet. This will not be a fun Earth Day to celebrate in this time, will it? And in the midst of celebrating Earth Day, what we call, our society calls Mother Earth, that gives us all of what we need to survive, we have scrubbed the reality of the infinite personal God from nature, have we not? And what we've left in its place is mankind and its duty to steward the earth. Now, I'm not saying wreck the earth, but what I'm saying is in the midst of giving thanks and recognizing that all of what we have, the earth provides, nobody acknowledges God. And in the context of Revelation chapter 8, the earth now begins to be judged for the sin of mankind. And that's not something you hear on Earth Day. Nobody comes to Earth Day and recognizes the good, infinite, personal, creator, God, the one who has made the heavens and the earth and recognizes that I stand as an unholy sinner in light of the perfection of the God who has given me all that I need to continue to live on his planet. And here they're brought together. The sinfulness of humanity, the goodness of his creation that begins to be disrupted and judged by a holy and heavenly infinite personal God because of the sin of the people on the planet. It's hard to even wrap your mind around all of North America being on fire, isn't it? You read it and, and we don't have categories to understand this. See, 
God has shaken everything in this passage because of the crying out of his people. That his people pray and pray and pray and say, how long until you will judge our blood? How long until you respond? And when you make it to Revelation 8, it's as if God says, now. Wait a little while until now. See, we live in a culture, as I said, that has scrubbed, we're, we're kind of vaguely theist. And we've scrubbed the infinite personal God of the maker of the sea and the dry land, as Revelation 10 will talk about it. And what we're left then is to begin to navigate our time on earth and our understanding of things like right and wrong and true and false and good and bad and just and unjust and mercy and justice and all of these biblical terms without an infinite personal God. And mankind is now groping in the dark because there is no standard of truth, no standard of right and wrong by which we can determine something that is ultimately good and ultimately bad. So you don't live in Revelation chapter 8. You live in now. And the Son of Man who will bring God's plans and promises and purposes to its ultimate end in the book of Revelation has not returned yet. So the question that you and I have is that we live between these truths of God judging sin in the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus Christ in which he has judged sin in uh, Christ dying on the cross for our sin, and then the return of Jesus Christ who will make all things right because he's not back yet, right? So how do we live in light of his imminent return and knowing that Revelation chapter 8 is true? And Jesus answers that question for us because he knows that we are going to live in a time between the already, where our sins are forgiven, and we're right with God, and we live in a society and culture that does not acknowledge God, does not seek God, does not give thanks for him, his people, or his Christ. So how ought a church to live in this time? Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and I'll show you this. Jesus addresses this question when he talks to the disciples. Let me give you a little bit of a an on-ramp here. This is from Luke 17. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. The Son of Man is a, is a technical term for Jesus. It's used in Daniel and, and Ezekiel as well. It's one like a Son of Man walks up to the Ancient of Days in one of Daniel's vision. It's the one who has the authority to bring all of God's purposes to fulfillment. It's what we've seen the Lamb do in taking the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. And Jesus says, you will long for the day for me to come back and to make all things right, and you will not see it. Isn't that where we live now? Revelation, the book of Revelation closes with, come soon, Lord Jesus. Do you ever feel that as a Christian, where you're waiting and you're longing for God to come and to make things right? They will say to you, look here or look there and do, a, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It's a judgment passage, right? 
recognizing that when Jesus returns, he's not coming in mercy, he's coming in judgment. That's the point. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Does that sound familiar? So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So that's, that's the background of what of the story Jesus is about to tell to his disciples. Is this longing and this pressure and this weight in the heart of the Christian who looks out on this world and sees injustice and persecution and uh, martyrdom and all of these things happening on our planet and we long for Jesus to come back and to make it right. Now it's in that context that Jesus gives this parable. This is a very important parable very visceral, very emotional parable. Look at verse 1 in chapter 18. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he gives you, here's the point of this parable. You ever get tempted when you look into our society or into your life and into things not being right about your sin or about uh, struggles that your family has or about the word uh, of hearing about religious persecution and martyrdom and people giving their life for their faith. And there's this tension in your heart when you pray because you know it and I know it and I have it too is, is we go, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. And I look at, at the situations in, in my purview, in my kind of myopic way, and I'm tempted to lose heart, aren't you? Aren't you tempted to pray and to pray and to pray and go, it, it's not worth it. He's not doing anything. He's not showing up. He's not making it right. But there's this time between the first coming and the second coming, right? That's what Jesus just said. First, the Son of Man must be rejected by this generation. And then he will come. And when he comes, it will be immediate. He will respond immediate. Now, he tells this story. And you've got two main characters in the story. It's an easy parable to understand. You've probably seen these themes in your own life or as you read the news or look out into our culture or our world. Jesus says this, verse two, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. That's not a very good judge, would you agree? There's two things about this judge that are very, very important for a judge to have. There's a story in 2 Chronicles 19 which you may or may not have read this week about a king named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat sets up a bunch of judges. And he tells these judges, be careful what you do because you don't judge for man, you judge for God. And consistently throughout the Old Testament, when a judge takes his place, he is meant not to take bribes and he's meant to execute the standard of God's righteousness and judgment. He's meant to be a stand-in between God and the cases that he has to deal with. And this judge doesn't, see what it says? He doesn't fear God. That means he has no ultimate standard. The standard rests in himself. 
There's no higher authority that this judge appeals to. He ought to appeal to God and to his standards and to his word and to his law, but he doesn't care. He doesn't respect God. Not only that, he doesn't respect men. He's got no standards and he's got no sympathy. That the plight of the people who come to him and ask him to make a judgment and to bring justice don't matter to him. He's got zero sympathy on the victims in this world. Verse 3, there was a widow. Now a widow in this time is probably one of the most vulnerable individuals in the society. Because she has no husband, her husband dies, she's left to rely on the society. She's left to rely on family. And in issues of abuse or oppression, her vulnerability is exposed. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, there's two words that that you could use here to talk about justice. One is the word crisis, K-R-I-S-I-S. It means to make a distinction, which you would think she needs a, a judgment to make a distinction in this case, but that's not the word. The word is a stronger word. It's used by Paul in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's actually used in Revelation chapter six, the passage that we just looked at, by the martyrs. The martyrs use both words. Revelation six, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. That the widow in this situation is the oppressed one. She's the vulnerable one. She's the one who's been taken advantage of. She's the one who's experienced the hurt and pain of being weak in a society that thrives on the strength of people, where the strong eat the weak. And she comes to the judge, the one who has the authority and the power to fix her situation. It says she kept coming. It's in the imperfect, which means it's an ing verb, which means it's continual. That she's, oh, you're here this morning. Can I have justice, please? Oh, you're on your lunch break. Hey, I'm here again. Could I have some justice, please? Would you please? Oh, hey, you're going home. Can I walk with you? Because I really, really need some justice in my life. You're in the bathroom, I'll wait outside till you come out and then we're gonna have this conversation about justice, about vengeance, about you righting the wrongs that have been done against me. Look at verse four. For a while, he refused. Nah, nah, I don't care, not important, don't fear God, don't respect man, not important to me. I don't need to speak up for this, this is something else, I don't care that she's abused, I don't care that she's uh, a victim, I don't care that people are taking advantage of her, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. But afterwards, he said to himself, that you get into the mind of this judge for just a minute and you look at the heart of the judge. Let me ask you something. In the midst of your prayers, do you ever question the character of God because you don't see him moving and acting when you want him to? 
You ever feel that? That tension in your soul when you pray and you go, he hasn't answered, he hasn't acted, that this, this pain, this difficulty, this hardship, this persecution, this pressure that I feel, he hasn't answered. He said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. Yeah, that's a, that literally in the Greek, it means to give a black eye. That this lady is coming after this judge and, hey, 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 justice, hey, can, can, we, can we please have some justice? Can we, and she go, he goes, I give up. She will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, Jesus now takes this parable and he says, let's interpret it. And you may see in this passage the beginning of the parable that tells you you ought to always pray and not lose heart, right? That's, that's our application. But if you only see that application, you're going to miss something important about this parable. The Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He doesn't say, look at the widow. Isn't that interesting? He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Verse 7. <clears throat> Will God... And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? What's the answer? Revelation chapter 8. He will give justice. Will he delay long over them? Well, Steve, it's been 2,000 years of church history, and we've had martyrs that have continued to be martyred for the name of Jesus Christ and for the testimony of his son. And we continue to see religious persecution and injustice happen in our society and in societies around the world where might makes right And Christians are persecuted and tormented and tortured for their faith and what they believe about Jesus Christ. It sure feels like he's delayed long over them. See, when you pray, we we do this monthly prayer gathering for our church and we meet out down in the chapel. And we meet in the chapel and this past time that we did our prayer meeting, we prayed through the Lord's Prayer. And prayer is more than just gimme, 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 amen, Jesus, bye. You know that, right? You know that, but we all pray that way, right? We go, yeah, you're right. There's probably some things that I'm missing in, this, in my prayer life. So what we did is we prayed through the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer begins, and it's helpful for us because the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, and Jesus goes, sure, I'll teach you to pray. And he prays in like 15 seconds. He gives you a prayer, and it's massive in its implications. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That the Lord's Prayer starts with perspective. It starts with seeing things from God's vantage point, not our vantage point. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, there's something more important in my life of greater priority than my priorities when I come to pray. Right? Ultimately, Christians pray, God, you do whatever you want to do for your kingdom and your glory to be seen on this earth. And then we pray for provision. Give us this day our daily bread because we need things for God to provide in our life. Lead us not into temptation or uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That we need pardon in our prayer before God because we are sinners and we come before God only because of the blood of Christ in whose name we pray. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we need protection from the evil forces that exist in the heavenly realms, the heavenly places. 
We need protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil that assault our souls as we live life on this sinful planet. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we need to get off our knees and we need to say, God, your will be done. And that orders our prayer life. You with me? It helps us see our world appropriately because you need truth to pray well. If you only bring emotion to your prayer life, you're gonna pray dumb stuff. I'll put it on me. I pray dumb stuff when I only bring my emotions to prayer. My prayer needs to be girded up with truth about God and who he is. So when I come to pray, I need to know some things in this passage, don't I? One, I need to know that God is not an unrighteous judge. God does not ignore unrighteousness in perpetuity. Either my unrighteousness will be solved because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for me on the cross, or ultimately unrighteousness will be punished by God in the book of Revelation and for all eternity. Do you believe that? Do you see how the stakes of the gospel start to rise? I've got to believe that when I pray and I see injustice in the world and I see religious persecution and I see martyrdom for the name of Jesus Christ, that God has not forgotten his standards of absolute purity and righteousness. That the scriptures say that God will judge every action, every thought, and every secret of man by Christ Jesus. So when I pray and I see injustice, I don't inform God of things that he doesn't know. Right? I bring to God the pain of life in a sinful world. But number two, what I need to know when I come to pray, not only is God a righteous standard, does God hold the righteous standard and is able to judge every single man, woman, and child on the planet by his own perfect standard, but I need to know that he's kind. Don't you? I need to know that he's not just a judge, but that he loved us so much that he sent his son. In this we know love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and, gave, and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That Jesus became the wrath bearer. This is why I've been jumping on this with both feet through the book of Revelation. Christian, you will not experience the wrath of God because the wrath of God fell on Jesus Christ for everything that you've ever thought, amen? For everything that you've ever felt that was against the truth of God's holy word. For everything that you've ever done. For everything that you ever will do, every single one of your sins have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Period, exclamation point, the end. For those who are outside of the blood of Christ, you have the book of Revelation. So the question in verse seven, will he delay long over them? Look at verse eight. Here's how Jesus ends this parable. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It's the same word that's used in Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave to his servants to show his servant John the things that must soon take place, that must speedily take place. The very next event on God's prophetic timetable is the return of the rapture of the church, the return of Jesus Christ to judge for sin. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Or will God's people stop praying? 
Stop crying out. Stop identifying injustice and pain and martyrdom and persecution and give up because they are not sure God is faithful. Will he find faith on the earth? So here we stand between his first and his second coming in a culture that has removed the infinite personal God from our understanding. And what Jesus says is the indicator of your faith is the constant coming to a God who is just and righteous and kind. See, Christians who don't pray or who have forgotten to pray have forgotten the stakes We've forgotten the place where we live. We live between the justice of God and the wickedness of mankind. Do you believe that? And here's our church standing between the justice of God and the wickedness of our family and friends and coworkers and neighbors, and we have a message of reconciliation. See, it's the Christian who understands the stakes of eternal justice. It's the Christian who understands to the depths of who they are what it means to be forgiven of every action, every thought, every intention that has gone against the righteous standards of God. It's the Christian who understands that we can now call God our heavenly father. We can now say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here we stand. This is how Paul puts it, and we'll, we'll close here. Because the encouragement in this passage is to pray, is it not? It's to continue to pray. It's continuing to lay before God our pains and our hurts and our suffering, trusting, God, that you will answer in your time. God, I'm not going to hold you to a timetable, but you are faithful to your word. Do we need that when we pray? Do we need to remember that God is faithful to his word? That's why we pray the truth of God's word. That's why we pray the scriptures. We pray the Psalms because we remind our hearts that he's faithful to his word. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That it has been given to you, Christian, the service of reconciliation, that you stand on this planet with the only answer to the justice of God. Do you believe that? That you can't find it in politicians and pundits and people who think that they have the right perspective. You gotta find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, amen? that you can find forgiveness from God himself, that he can solve the guilt issue in your heart because of the blood of Christ. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God because the judgment of God is coming. And as Hebrews said, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father in heaven, this text is severe. 
There are truths here that we easily forget when we reduce your holiness and your righteousness. There are things that we forget about the gospel truth and the gospel message that has forgiven us all of our sins, that now we can stand cleansed and holy in your presence because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, if there's somebody here this morning who did not know that, I pray that by faith they would receive what Jesus has done for them on the cross and that they would come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. That you would redeem, you would restore, you would reconnect the relationship between God and sinners as you have done in the person and work of Christ and that many would call out to you and find forgiveness before the day of judgment comes. Father, we are sobered by Revelation chapter eight. May we live in light of the truth of what the stakes are It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.